Welcome back to another episode of the Bodybuilding Download the Podcast. I am DC and I'm one of your four co-hosts. However, at this current time, we are still one co-host down. One of us is still enjoying the summer months in Europe, which is our man DY. But today I do have Jack and Lawrence with me. And us combined, we still pretty much match the same level of muscle mass. So that is okay. <laughs> now, uh, last week, we did do a little bit of a uh, quick catch up with everybody to see how they were in terms of their training and nutrition. Probably not necessary for us to do today. Not a whole lot has changed. Uh, I believe Lawrence and I are still in a uh, mini cut. So we are partially leaner and, uh, and Jack is partially fatter, being that he's the only one in a, in a current gaining phase. But um, what I thought we would do is kind of transition over to some some questions with regards to listener listener questions but i did want to do a little bit of the inba wrap up now i would have loved to have viewed more more content on social media in respect to the placings because i think the inba um the inba natural Olympias is one of the coolest shows and uh, and competitive shows but they're not too vocal when it comes to the social media side of things did you always see much posted on socials about it no, just it's kind of secondhand information from from other people's stuff. Yeah, hundred percent. So I, I know that we had three BK conditioning boys compete, which was um, Bryce, Rota, and uh, and Peter, and all did all did pretty well. And I know that like Kyoshi Moody and uh, Philip Ricardo was uh, was competing, and pretty inspiring story with regards to to Kyoshi having taken like a large stretch of time off. I believe he was. Um, managing cancer so for him to, mm. to come back and compete after you know so long away from the stage and, and that sort of adversity is, is pretty inspirational um but i believe the man who took out the first place was a was a guy from us U, usa and i think um was it ben lloyd i think got second lloyd, yeah that's right lloyd yeah i think he came second wasn't it mm. something along those lines i'm not sure who was um who was the the third place there but yeah i know that you boys probably want to do an imba uh show at one point in time do you especially you are lawrence i know you've mentioned in the past that you're uh, interested in doing that show yeah absolutely mate i think it's just sort of you know that mystique it's it's las vegas it's the natural olympia like it's definitely one of the premier shows across the world so we'll have to get over there one year to do that one i don't think it'll be it won't quite beat our wmbf worlds i think i don't know maybe that's a controversial topic like which is the true like natty super bowl i think to me the WMBF world is is probably just got its nose in front. But then again, like the standard that you see at the Natural Olympia is pretty incredible. Um, I thought that, you know, AJ's client, um, Adam, looked absolutely unreal. He took out the bodybuilding and the classic. Um, yeah. And yeah, I was even watching um, the Natural Bodybuilding Worldwide, like one day out of video for one of the UK shows. And even then he was just looking absolutely insane. So Big congrats to him. He looked awesome. And then mm. um, obviously now we get ready to do it all again with the WMBF Worlds, just sort of five or six days out now. And we'll no doubt going to have some more to talk about um, after that show takes place. Mm, absolutely. That'll be actually a really cool uh, recap for our next episodes, perhaps. Uh, and I believe Alberto did a did a show over the weekend, didn't he? I, I did see some. Yeah, NPC, that. I think. It was an NPC show. I think he copped a little bit of slack. From, from the looks of it with respect to like, you know, why would you compete in a, uh, in a, in a potentially untested show as a, as a natural athlete? And uh, his kind of premise there was that, well, hey, I love the sport. So if I want to mm. compete, I want to compete. And that's the reason I do it. It's not necessarily to, you know, undercut any of the, the federations that do test. And it's certainly not 
as an ego stint to kind of jump into the, the the pool of guys that do you know potentially take stuff and say hi i can do this too but um you know it's just because you if you love to do it then that's that's kind of like your rodeo and i respect that mm. so, um, and you got to remember as well like you know these guys at the pro level they don't have a lot of opportunities to compete like the pro shows yes they're a little bit more popular there in the states but it is still like amateur sport where there's going to be a lot more competitions and a lot more opportunities to actually compete when you're an amateur compared to a pro kind of like the icm pros here so you know why would you put yourself through a grueling prep to only compete a handful of times when you could compete in a different federation and and actually get some of that stage time and and get that practice under your belt Mm, yeah and like we've talked about in, in previous shows or previous podcasts around the concept of improving you know between shows so I've only got one one opportunity to run a particular like peak week protocol, and you can imagine if you your take home from it was that you could improve certain variables, but you've only got then one show to do it. Yeah, you've missed that opportunity post. So yeah, we totally we totally understand that. But um, let's get into some Q and A questions. And the first question that we did have come through was if you knew what you knew now in terms of uh, bodybuilding, having competed in your first show. Would you have uh, postponed your first season? It's a That's philosophical tough. one. I think about this all the time. Like I even was said said it to a friend the other day where it's like, I could make the rationale for still have never stepped on stage. You know, being 22, starting bodybuilding when I was 16, like I would still, it would probably be very reasonable for me to say like, no, I want to start when I'm 16 and I'm going to take eight years or 10 years until I actually make that first stage appearance because like realistically 22 23 you're still a junior in the world of bodybuilding so you're still considered young and i mean yeah i could have done that but you know would i be as in love with the sport would i be as in love with the process as i am now if i had still been yet to experience a contest prep and a show day as a probably wouldn't be on the podcast yeah would would i be on the podcast probably not so Yeah, I I just think that although I I know for sure that I was able to, well, I probably would have more muscle mass if I didn't compete up to this point. That's pretty hard to dispute because I would have spent all that time in a really good environment for gaining. But, you know, I've learned a lot about myself over that time and sort of feel like each prep has refined the way that I do things. So, yeah, I just think that it's it's one of those things where I'm happy that I competed when I did because it, it really sparked a passion and you know, if you take a six year off season, sort of work into that goal where you don't actually know what it's going to feel like, like at least now when I've been in this extended off season, I know I'm working towards something and I know how, how awesome the end product is. And I know that I'm, I'm working towards that show that I know how great it's going to be. But if you don't have any sort of idea of that, that end goal, then, you know, sometimes that, that may affect your motivation and, and not that, you know, we're outcome oriented, I think it's still really important to take a lot of out of the process itself. Cause I think in a sport like bodybuilding, if you just care about the trophies, like you're not going to have a long um, lifespan in this sport. Um, but yeah, I think that the shows that have been important from myself to actually, you know, lighting that fire and, and building that passion. Mm, I completely agree. What are you about you, Jack? What do you think? Yeah. So I don't think either of our preps were poor either. Like they were, even our first preps, although they probably weren't as good as our latter preps, 
it, it wasn't like we we made awful mistakes. Yes, Lawrence ate some sugar-free lollies, but that was probably the worst worst case scenario of his prep. And all we really needed in subsequent years was to gain more size. So I don't think that there was nothing major in my first prep where I was like, oh, I probably, I definitely won't be doing that again. Um, if anything, in my first prep, my sleep was actually better. I know I go on a lot about sleep, but my sleep was actually better in my first prep. And uh, I probably didn't quite, didn't suffer quite as much from the lower energy availability compared to my second prep. And I, I pretty much put that down to being a lot, a lot busier with uni and, and prep placement and assessment in my first prep compared to my second prep where I was starting out as a coach. But yeah, I, I definitely would not po postpone that first season. I, I'm glad I did it when I did. And similar to Lawrence's case, it kind of kickstarted my not passion for bodybuilding because I was fairly passionate already, but it solidified that I was going to be doing this. It solidified the coaching aspect and all of that sort of stuff. Mm, yeah, definitely. And I think like when you look at it from the perspective of, okay, you might've missed out an extra one year of, of, you know, that time spent dieting to then recovering to have potentially built muscle within that time frame. That's not to say that the, the time in which between seasons, you finish your first competition, it kind of lights that fire to, to do things to a greater degree. So be more dedicated, take your training sessions further because you know what's required through the process of competition, you've, you've now walked that walk, right? So you can kind of then visualize what it's like to then jump on stage the next time around. And like you said, Lawrence, you learn through through that process. And I mean, if you look at someone like myself, I'm, I'm someone who's procrastinated with an off season for probably well and truly too, too long, right? So I had- A decade. Around, yeah, good goals around competing when I was a teen, like when, when you guys competed, but- for various reasons, I just thought, oh no, it's okay. I'll, I'll compete later on, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, and just kind of get kept getting pushed back. Now, for me, it works favorably. Like, it, maybe if I was to do it again, if it was a slightly different season, maybe it wouldn't have been the intended result that I that I got within the last season. You never know who's going to show up, right? But um, I look back and I reflect on myself, and I think I should have competed when I was, you know, earlier. I shouldn't have put pushed things back so far because I feel like. I would have learned a lot about myself through the process of competing. So, um, and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of benefits that you, there's a lot of like great takeaways that you get from, from contest prepping, mm. you know, pushing yourself to a place that perhaps you never thought you could have, you could have done prior to you commencing that prep. So irrespective of the result that you achieved as well. So. Do you think it would have thrown you into the, maybe more forcefully thrown you into the sort of bodybuilding scene as well, so to speak? Mm, I definitely think so. Yeah. I definitely think in respect to the coaching scene in particular, mm. uh, because throughout the entirety of, of that duration, I mean, I was studying at uni, did my, my EP, I was working as an exercise physiologist more within injury rehab and, and chronic disease management. And then also PTing at a gym at the same time. And, uh, but, you know, I look at my pathway now in regards to my career and had I competed earlier, I probably would have found this passion with regards to coaching. Uh, in the physique sports space earlier so from that perspective I wish I hadn't have postponed it right but I wouldn't mm. I wouldn't take away the knowledge that I developed through the avenues that I worked um, in with as, a, as an EP prior to that so you know you can't re reverse time and I certainly learned a lot through that so it's not lost time by any means it's just a slightly different direction of sorts 
Mm. But um, yes, I think you know same same as you boys in that respect. But for me, I uh, I think I would have not postponed it. So perhaps the opposite of what you guys provide as an answer. But uh, let's move into the next question here. And what are some of your highlight moments in coaching that you'll never forget? And I know in terms of yourself, Lawrence, you can even apply this to, to the physio space, you know, as well. Um, let's chuck it over to you, Jack. You can, uh, you can answer this one first. Yeah, so I think for me, it will probably be the first competitors that Tara and I had on stage. I, I don't think either of them listened to this podcast, but uh, Kate and Oliver, who I think did season A of 2019, and they both actually did quite well, but it was it was great because they put so much faith into us who uh, hadn't prepped anyone before. Uh, I remember sort of uh, going into the UQ Sport group fitness room with them and and doing some posing and uh, basically basically applying everything that we'd learnt throughout our studies and also self self learn as well because at that point we hadn't really learnt as much from a experience standpoint and more so the art of coaching which I think you you develop more so with experience you don't learn the art of coaching through through textbooks and yeah just seeing them up on stage and having them as competitors for team tbd probably is what's very memorable for me mm, for sure what about you Lawrence in the physio space yeah it's like I suppose it's interesting because I think like every time you know you you see someone and you know, they might come in and in a lot of pain and you can help them out and at least make them feel better when they leave. That's always nice. Um, but I think the the moments that I'm probably going to savor the most are probably yet to come where I sort of think of some of the people that I'm working with at the moment that have, you know, goals that are very long-term. Like you might have someone who's seen you for ACL rehab, for example. And like, as you know, that's a nine to 12 month process to get them back on the field and, and back to actually playing. So, you know, there's a young girl that I'm working with at the moment for her ACL rehab. And she's probably about seven, eight months at the moment. And, you know, just getting to the stage where she can get back to a bit of team training <clears throat> and um, get back to a bit of, you know, light skill work and stuff like that. And, and then, you know, thinking ahead to the day where she can finally actually play again, that will be pretty epic. And, yeah, it's probably more moments like that where you've spent so much time, so much effort, you've you've thought about this situation so often, like getting those people back, I think are the ones that are probably feel the best. And, and similar to a coach, you know, I'm sure that the, the, the clientele that you see that have had a, you know, maybe a really tough prep where you've had to work around a lot of adversity and maybe they've had a huge journey up until this point. Like when you get success with those people, it is a lot more gratifying because you know, everything that's gone into that. So I think definitely those more long-term people are the ones where, you know, you just have that extra bit of satisfaction because you know how much has gone into it. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, as a coach, our intention is to always provide the very best to, to our athletes. And you kind of do live sort of semi-vicariously through, through your athlete, you know, within a contest prep. So if they are going through struggles, you, you, you kind of feel those struggles as well. And um, I think for me, some of the some of the moments that I, I cherish the most most is is being backstage with those competitors, particularly when they've gotten off that stage with that medal, or that trophy, or or even just regardless of the placing, like they've given you a hug post show and and sort of acknowledged 
you know, the teamwork that you've put forth, the effort that they've put in and then the direction that the coach has provided through it and, uh, and the fact that they've been able to, to perhaps, perhaps achieve something that they may not thought was achievable at the, at the very beginning. And like you said, Lawrence, you know, everybody goes through their own individual adversities within a Qantas prep. It's such a large time frame where there are things that are bound to happen in life that are going to Im- impact your ability to, to carry out the protocol or um, will affect your emotional stability or things like that, right? So, you know, I've been backstage where competitors have kind of broken down and, and cry, cried in your arms. And uh, because it's a very emotional, you know, emotional um, time for a lot of competitors. So, uh, yeah, I know what it's like. I'm pretty sure I, 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 I cried when I was up on that stage as well when I hugged B after the show. So, you know, you know what you put into it and um, you, you kind of express that at that very moment, which is that sort of moment of vulnerability post-show and you're kind of acknowledging everything around you happening. So yeah, that's that's probably the the highlights for for myself there. But um, like you said, Jack, it's kind of you. There's all aspects of um, all all highlights within within coaching, and there's also pet peeves, right? There's also frustrations that we have uh, as coaches, which was actually one of the uh, the questions of um, of the poll as well, which kind of feeds nicely into the direction of where we're heading. But um, what are some of the frustrations slash coaching pet peeves? that you boys would have. I've kind of like circled back and forth between you two. Um, I've, I think I just finished with you, Lawrence. So I'll get, I'll throw <laughs> it back to you, man. What, uh, what are some of your pet peeves with regards to, um, to, to physio? And you, you cannot, there's a caveat here, but you cannot mention the word neutral. I'm sorry. Oh no. You just, it, I have just nothing else to talk about. <laughs> All right, Jack, let's, no, I'm yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I must say as well, DC, that was just a masterful segue. Thank you. Holy moly. You can tell this guy's been doing this for 20 something podcasts. Sheesh, like a true pro. Um, Man, I'm just it, it's, it, eh? <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know. Hey, like physio, yes, there's stuff that, you know, irritates you. And I think a lot of the time it, it can be, you know, you expect the typical answer, like, you know, patients not doing their exercises, for example, but just given, you know, how we are as humans and, and the fact that when people come to see a physio, I think I'm very aware of the fact that outside of the four walls that I see them, you know, I'm a very small part of their lives in the grand scheme of things. So I'm normally quite understanding of that. And, and I'm also very aware that, you know, the exercises are yes, important, but it's not the be all and end all. Like for a lot of, of conditions, the, the natural history is the most important thing and just giving people time. And, you know, in certain conditions, you can almost argue that the exercise is just there to occupy them whilst the body actually takes care of itself. So I think that for me, it's probably more like frustrations around things I see from other professionals rather than things from patients, you know, like demonizing certain exercises or just some of the language that's used with people like I think language is maybe probably one of the biggest ones. Like when you talk about, you know, you might be speaking to a patient that's had some, some knee osteoarthritis and they tell you that, you know, they've seen someone, they've gotten a scan and and that doctor or that physio or that whoever that they saw told them, Oh, you know, it's bone on bone. Like you're going to need a replacement in three years because, you know, you just can't say stuff like that because one, you don't know that that person is going to need to, And two, we have so much research and so much evidence showing 
how important the words that we choose are in creating expectations for people. So enough, I, I had a client or I have a client whose surgeon basically told them that. Yeah. Bone it's, on bone, you're going to classic. need a replacement. Yeah. So it's like, it's bone on bone. And then you'd like, imagine what the picture that that creates in someone's mind. And the other thing that it creates is an expectation for what the treatment is going to involve. So if someone has an understanding that their knee is bone on bone, there is no cartilage left and it is just two surfaces like crunching on each other. One that is very fear inducing. And two, I mean, how am I supposed to, like, how are you supposed to convince someone with that understanding that some exercises and some strengthening are going to make it better and weight loss is going to make it better? Like that person immediately is thinking, okay, I have to go get this operated on. This is the only option. Whereas if you frame it in a different way and in a more honest way where it's like, okay, you know, we've had some, some natural, very normal and very typical um, changes to the cartilage, but we know that if we get you a bit stronger and we get you a bit healthier overall, reduce your body weight, that area that's a bit irritated can settle down and things can start to improve. So yeah, the language and the, the choice of words that certain professionals make, and it happens at all body parts, you know, your shoulders impinging, your spine's out of place, it's bone on bone, like you take your pick really. But it's, um, that's probably a really big one that grinds my gears because then you have to spend like a, a decent portion of your consult actually just undoing this language and trying to de-threaten what people have been told. Mm, yeah, and no, I completely relate to that. And that was some of the, the issues that I would run into when I was working more in, um, in injury rehab and chronic disease management is that often these patients would come to you with very preconceived ideas around their condition, which, you know, they've had a 10 minute appointment with their GP, which is a problem in itself in terms of the Medicare system, I guess. But um, yeah. And then you've got, you know, your session, which you're, you're trying to reverse these, these thoughts and it all comes back down to that, that whole, um, you know, biopsychosocial model of health where, you know, there's so many different facets that influences someone's uh, overall injury management and uh, injury pre prevalence. And I actually listened to one of your recent podcasts, Lawrence, which was um, with your lecturer, one of your lecturers. Mm, yes, mate, the great Steve. Yeah, 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 Steve. That was a fantastic podcast. Yeah, he's a legend. What was the word that you would uh, commonly refer to? Is it robust? Is robust, yeah. robust, yeah. He would say that in legit like every single lecture. And I say it now to patients. It's just like, yep, we're going to make that, that back robust. So yeah, it's a good one. Mm, yeah, no, awesome. What about you, Jack? Pet peeves, man. Far away. Yeah, I'll just list them on my. Yeah, you've got your things. list. There. I can see your notebook. How many pages is that? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I think the question asked is looking for some juicy response here, but I think as a as coaches, like it can be. I don't want to speak for all coaches, but like we're in our little bubble in the sense that when we maybe message a client or give a client something, we can't use ourselves as reference because it's our profession. It's what we do day to day. Whereas for a client, they've got everything else going on. They might have a family. They've got uh, another line of work that might be completely unrelated to fitness and nutrition. And I think that's super important for a coach to remember day to day. If a client might be late with their check-in or if they might not do their check-in or if they might not be as, as, as compliant as they should be, like they've, they've got a lot of other stuff going on. So I think for me, it's, it's not really any of those things. It's more so just communication. Like if, if someone does or doesn't do something and they, I guess they don't let me know about it. Like that probably bothers me 
more than not doing it in the first place. Like if someone, someone just completely misses their check-in, but they've let me know about it. They just said, Hey Jack, I'm not doing my check-in this week. Then I'd rather them do that than just not do the check-in. I'm not sure if you can resonate with that DC. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I, can, I think communication is, is key in any, any dynamic really mm. um, you know, in particular, in particular coaching where you have a certain parameters around how you communicate, what days of the week you might run your check-in, et cetera. And obviously you've got the means of being able to communicate between that. But I honestly think communication is the foundation of a successful contest prep, right? Because mm. they can relay information to you when, when concerns are arising and, uh, and you can relay, you know, strategies and, and think tips and tricks and things like that to navigate through those waters. So, you know, I completely agree with you in, in that, in that token, uh, for myself, probably pretty similar, but I would also say like lost potential. So I think, I think when potentially the, the coach wants the result more than the athlete, I think that's probably mm. a big one as well. Like, you know, I might have an athlete that um, I think can do just exceptionally well within, within their desired category and they may not apply themselves uh, to, to the, to the degree of my expectations within, within a prep. And, um, and I guess that also comes down to sort of feasibility and things like that as well. Um, but I, I do believe that the endeavor in which the athlete wants to achieve often determines the feasibility of the protocol as well. So like if we look at something like a contest prep and towards the tail end, and perhaps you need to dig deep in regards to your steps or your calories or things like that, uh, the, the protocol may not be feasible, right? It may not be feasible to eat 120 grams of carbs and, and walk 14K steps every day, but that's kind of what's required of you at that point in time to achieve your desired conditioning. So it's kind of like the feasibility of that is minimal, but it's required to, to do well. So mm. I think, you know, it, I mean, it all t doesn't just tie down to one thing, but I do think that, that when an athlete can apply themselves and the coach can provide that guidance and they can work synonymously with one another via communication, like you've highlighted, then it's kind of like an unstoppable force really, because you've got two people connecting minds to make something happen. But um, when there's, when that connection is not there, that's, that's when things start to kind of fall to the waistline, which I think kind of doubles back to what, what you've mentioned there in regards to communication. Yeah, it does underpin everything, especially online coaching specifically where I mean, if it's in person, the person's there. So you, you have to communicate. Whereas online, someone can read something and not reply or not even see it, or they might not, someone might not even attempt to communicate in the first place. Mm, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I think just in general, like, you know, I, I always felt like at uni and, and you guys would have, would have experienced this when you were going through where like they'd bang on about communication and they'd be like, oh, you know, it's so important. It's so important. And in practice exams, like, you know, I'm, I'm quite a, outgoing person and you know i speak to people quite easily so i would always get good feedback of like yeah your communication's really good like blah 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 and i just thought that's kind of like a i don't know like a a meh statement like i thought to myself well that's just standard like communication it's not hard um but then when you see it done poorly you realize how important that actually is because it is honestly if you don't have that it does not matter how skilled you are like you could have the best training programs, you could have the best rehab programs, the best diets. Like if you don't know how to create rapport with someone, come down to their level and create buy-in, like it really doesn't matter what you have to offer. And there's, there's people, examples I can think of where I've seen someone for a consult and 
And you can just tell, like you're halfway through the consult and you can just tell that your communication style is just not quite getting through to that person. And you're just not creating that buy-in and you're maybe just on two different wavelengths. And that's going to happen every now and again, even if you're trying to do your best and trying to alter it as much as needed. Every now and again, you're going to encounter someone where you're just different personalities and you're just not ever going to find a middle ground and that's okay. Um, but equally, you do have to be willing to alter your communication styles for different people and sort of meet them where they're at. Because if you can't do that, then you know you also run the risk of then that person doesn't come back to you. They didn't feel like you sort of created a good environment. And then they're perhaps going to someone who's going to give them a subpar service. Like I think about that a lot of, you know, I don't want someone to then not come back to me and then potentially seek um, a healthcare provider who is is not going to provide them a service that is actually conducive to what they want. And, and in, in the worst instances could actually be, you know, harmful. So it's just really important to take that seriously. And even though it, it seems like a bit of a throwaway, like our oh, communication, whatever, like it is really, really big part of, of any sort of business or, or any profession where you are working directly with people. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's once you, when you learn about communication in uni, it's, as you said, it's one of those things which you kind of dismiss and be like, oh, like that's the easy part when in reality, that's the people. Yeah. I was just like communication column, easy marks. Thanks for coming, boys. <laughs> yeah. It's just like a filler comment based on your yeah. back of your assessment. Oh, you have great communication. Yeah, thanks. I can put like commas in between sentences and yeah, <laughs> yeah 100%. But I think Jack, you made a good point as well, just on that um about like just appreciating sort of that you're treating a person and i think that's often what i try to remember with my own practice is like you know when i see someone with low back pain i'm not treating a low back i'm treating a person with low back pain and you're treating that person not in a vacuum you're treating them in context of their entire life their thoughts, their feelings, their past experiences, you know, there are different social networks and there are different occupational networks. And you just, you really have to treat in that holistic manner. And I think there's actually a really, probably an undiscussed component of, of coaching. I think in, in like what you guys do is like, is bringing this biopsychosocial approach mm. from sort of its main home in healthcare and, and kind of bringing that into contest prep and coaching as well. Because at the end of the day, you know, like, a lot of people, they're going to be checking in with, with coaches a lot more than they're maybe seeing a physio or their dietitian, I guess, in a in normal setting, Jack. Mm. Um, you and Tierra are definitely the exceptions <laughs> to the rule. But um, I just think it's important to discuss that stuff as well. Like, you know, just being mindful that these are human beings that are not just, you know, following your orders with nothing else going on. Like they're going to have normal lives as well. It's just important to be cognizant of that. Mm, absolutely. And that's why like with, if an athlete, you know, checks in with a coach each week, it's not just simply, you know, the three macros and, 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 the, and the calories that they've hit for the day. And, and that's it. The sad thing is that's a lot, that's a lot of how a lot of coaches work though. Is it not the macros? Oh, Joey, we've been doing this for six years. I just get three numbers and see you next week. What's going on? I'm just kidding everybody. Joey Cantlin's a great coach. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, yes. It, if it, if your if your check in just relies upon, uh, you know the three numbers or the four numbers being being uh, calories as well, then 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 surely that's lacking a very integral component of the information that you need each week. 
Um, one of the things that I used to struggle with, uh, for, like doing check-ins for athletes is asking them too many questions to the point where I feel like I'm actually becoming a burden in a check-in because there's certain things that I want to know about, like their biofeedback markers. I want to know if, if they have questions for myself. I want to know how they've responded to the training stimulus. If they have any niggles, if they, how are they managing things at this point in time? You know, how have they gone with the nutrition plan? Do they have any meals off the plan? That's okay. But like, especially if they're in the off season, that's cool. But like, what were they? So I just, so I understand you roughly. And I, I find, I used to find that I would have to kind of taper down my check-in forms to just be a little bit more streamlined than people because mm. I would uh, fill it in myself. And it took, if it took me like, you know, 40 minutes or something ridiculous to fill it in, I'm like, okay, I'm taking up too much time. Yes, I need to be like succinct. So um, yes, communication is, is key, but I think effective communication and efficient communication is also key as well. Now, moving away from the co coaching conversation here, we did have a question around the use of specialty bars. So specialty uh, to barbells. Now, I personally- Quest bars. Quest bars. <laughs> Cookies That's a specialty bar. Specialty, a fiber bar for you that probably goes- Yeah, bizarre your gummy bears or whatever the hell you oh eat. mate yeah i actually quest bars are a really funny one because i actually i don't think they are particularly tasty but when really? i eat one it's like nostalgic and it like it tastes like the original protein bar you know mm. what i mean like it tastes how like a a pretty average like five out of ten protein bar would taste and i don't mind that I've heard if you if you microwave them for you know ten seconds or something like that, some of them that might just improve that you know consistency slash texture mm, profile. But I totally yeah. relate to you on that because you eat it and you're like, yeah, it's like okay for a protein bar, but I'm not I'm not like I'm not super faced mm. by this, right? <laughs> but it's like it tastes like a Quest bar, and it's like I don't know, I just I just like it every now and again. If I'm if I'm whatever happened to protein, because they were they were big back in like 2015, mm. 2016. Yeah, they're not as big anymore, I don't think. But like realistically, like protein bars, are, you struggle to find a good one. What's a 10 out of 10 protein bar if Quest is a five? Uh, that's literally twice as good. That's quite Yeah. Hard. Well, I think the best protein bar is Redcon 1 MRE bars. I don't know if they can make you, them anymore. Can you find that at PowerSums? You used to be able to. They're gone now. Well, Redcon 1 is a bit like um, up the proverbial creek at the moment because they had like, their owner went to jail and now like Jeez. the company's getting sued because I think there was like PEDs in some of the products, hopefully in some of the ones I bought. Am I right, boys? Am I right, boys? <laughs> well, mate, your, uh, your left bicep is looking a little bit more. Yeah, I know. There, so. It was from that one total, that one month on total war. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I don't, I think the whole company is, is going through a bit of a, a refresh at the moment. I don't know if they make them, but man, like, that was a protein bar that was actually like genuinely delicious. Mm -hmm. They were really good. What it's are your it. thoughts of uh, of protein bars, Jack? Because I personally have a little, little bit of a negative bias towards them. And I think that's because often the ones that I've encountered, generally their nutritional labels are just so out. Like they're just, you, often there's, you know, 100 or 200 calories just not accounted for with regards to that macros. Mm -hmm. Typically a combination of like synthetic uh, fibers that are added and also as a means to bulk the product and then the use of um of polyols as well so those kind of combined things don't don't really add up so i am mm. somewhat like if someone comes to me and they're like yeah i'm eating three protein bars a day i'm like okay cool well let's uh let's maybe try and you know push in some whole food <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I I think most of them taste very similar to a protein shake. So I'd rather just have a protein shake and then have a chocolate bar on the side because often there's so much fat in them that you might as well just have a, a, a boost bar or a Kit Kat and then have a protein shake. Mm. Yeah, and often the calories are, like you said, like not that much different. Obviously, yeah. there's a mixture of um, macros there. And if you ate a normal like cherry ripe bar, probably get the same cows, but <laughs> a little mm. more maybe carbs and fat sort of thing but and it's not it's not more nutritious having a protein bar like they're not better for you so to speak yes they have some protein but like it's not like you're getting fruit and veggies from your protein bar Mm. yeah have you ever heard of like i think i'm not too sure as a podcast i listened to it may have been talking about um on revive stronger maybe it was pascal or one of those guys they're talking about like just binging out on protein bars like after a show or in like in part of a, an extended diet where they just got like a box of grenade bars and just flattened it. And I was like, <laughs> man, like the, the, the palatability of a grenade bar is, is not that much, but when you're in prep, they taste like a, a dessert pretty much. So could well, you imagine what... just the state of the bathroom after that? <laughs> that's what I was going to say. I'm like, I'm not really fussed about the flavor, like whatever, you know, you eat cardboard in a prep, but I can tell you, man, the, <laughs> toilet you're gonna break that bowl like mm. your <laughs> toilet <laughs> oh man oh, cherry ripe was an interesting way to go there dc is that your chalky of choice i do love a good cherry ripe really wow okay mm. i think i my favorite would probably have to be a snickers a snickers no it's, nice and, it's substantial though like i want to feel like I've, I've hit the spot you know what i mean mm. what about you jack mine is the boost bar mm, I boost I, nice. are they unique to australia i think they maybe not but maybe we've got some international listeners let us know Mm, i thought you were going to say like the cream of rice or cream of (laughs) yeah yeah i've never heard of before that's that's painted by uh tbd yeah Yeah. i I was expecting jack to say something left field like a a morrow or something like that i'm sorry if you're opening up the favorites get the morrows and just throw them over the fence (laughs) no one's eating that and also this might be a hot take but milky ways garbage what about milky bars? No, that's white chocolate. I've got time for that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's good. I think Milky Way is very similar to a boost. It just doesn't have oh. the uh, crunchy center. Yeah, I think that's very unfair to compare it to a boost. <laughs> Boosts are so much better than a Milky Way. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. All right, boys. Well, uh, well actually, where I was taking that initial <laughs> <laughs> before, we, before we went down a, an alternative route. Uh, was to do with specialty barbells, not protein. Just had a 15-minute conversation about, about protein bars. But um, specialty bars. So I personally have not had a lot of uh, experience utilizing specialty bars, such as things like the Swiss bar, the Camber bar. I mean, I've used a safety bar and a trap bar before. I've used a deadlift bar before. But um, some of these wonderful and bizarre bars that you do see on, uh, on some of these websites like you know rogue and things like that i've never used before what about mm. you boys mm. tell you who loves a cambered bar is mike isretel yes he rose he does love a cambered bar and because they you've got the cambered bars which are kind of like i suppose if you were to do it with a barbell the bar would bend almost in the shape of your shoulders for the listeners to to maybe mm. imagine that yeah, pretty much it's almost well, like i'm thinking of the wrong bar actually what's the one he uses for rowing with like the like that you know that that is a cambered bar right. he's just got it the other way around yeah because you know full rom and all that am i right mm. 
But the one of the ones where it's just like a, a soft curve the whole way. Is that a uh, Buffalo bar? Or buffalo bar. Yeah, I'm pretty mm. sure that's a Buffalo bar. Where it's like bent the whole way? Because I've yeah. seen that a little bit. And then what's a Swiss yeah. bar? Uh, a Swiss bar is the, the barbell, like a type of barbell that you might use for, let's say you're bench pressing and you want to use a neutral grip. Oh, okay. Right. The mm. mix, mixture of like a multi-grip. Yeah. Grip. See, I call that a football bar because that's what JP would call it. Yeah, okay. They would refer to it as a football bar. But yeah, I don't, um, yeah, I just find those very uncomfortable. I always find that with those Swiss bars, the like the distance where you want to put your hands is just never right. It's always too close or too wide. And to have like a proper neutral where you know your wrist would actually be stacked like in line with your shoulder and your elbow is just never never achievable on that and mm. i just would rather do a you know a close tricep press on a smith or something like that you're either two internally or externally rotated through the shoulder and yeah i'm like this is just ridiculous and yeah they're um i think the only bars i would have really used then would be a deadlift bar i'm not sure the exact brand that they've got at powerhouse it just says the deadlift bar on the side they might be rogue i think um but i think that probably they're worthwhile to be fair i think if you if you're pulling up to a, a decent weight where it just becomes so hard off the floor, you definitely mm-hmm. will notice a, an increase in your performance and the loads you can move with a deadlift bar. And yes, that might kind of sound like, well, is that just fueling your ego? But you got to remember that if you're limiting yourself based on what you can pull off the floor in that first five or six inches, you're then limiting what you can load for all of the other parts of the range of motion. So if you can find a bar that allows you to get past that early sticking point, then all of the other part of the lift is still going to get overloaded, which you may not be able to do with like a stiff bar. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. What about you, Jack? Any experience with uh, different barbells? Pretty much just the safety bar for squatting and also the deadlift bar, but nothing else really. Mm. Do you like a safety bar squat? Yeah, it's... It's pretty darn similar, to be honest, for me. Very similar strength level on it. A little bit more quad bias, potentially, if I had to choose. I guess the weight's kind of more more neutral or slightly in front of you compared to the barbell. So You can get those safety bars where they've got like almost adjustable, you can kind of like adjust where the, the load actually hangs. Like in mm. a way, it's almost like a combination between a cambered bar and a safety bar that actually like moves in terms of where you can lock it. And therefore you might just slightly change the parameters of the butt, like the load being slightly in front of you, mimicking somewhat of like a front squat versus if the load's more back, you know, behind you in terms of perhaps like a low bar, something along those lines. But um, I saw that yeah. Brandon's uh, chucked in the front squat into yeah, his training. The rotation, it's a very humbling movement, isn't it? I, mm. It's been a long time since I've front squatted, but um, that I don't think I've ever front squatted. I think can bury you if you don't have... Um, good good trunk stability like good 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 bracing through the core like if you lose mm. that you get absolutely crushed not not to mention what happened to your spine if you lose that core activation oh, man, dc 100%. Yeah. we won't actually go into that because it's a pg show just an but... instant fold and mm. uh, yeah yeah have you actually um i was going to say i, I was going to get the atlantis v squat in the rotation for the next block have either of you tried that no atlantis v-squat. i can't even picture that one no no i haven't i'm trying to think if mm. um 
the the world gym up in sunny coast has has one because mm. they've got a lot of um atlantis stuff which yeah. is quality. is that the one at powerhouse yeah because they've got a, a hammer strength v squat there as well which i don't really rate um i've i've tried to run it i used to run it at world's bayside but i didn't think it was that good but i had a little play around with this one the other day and it feels really really nice so yeah i was just wondering either of you blokes had tried that is that the one that kind of mimics like a pendulum and a v squat sort of together or am i thinking mm-hmm. i might be thinking about the watson oh you're thinking about i know which one you're you're thinking about that's that's also they've got one of those at powerhouse um but uh, yeah it's not that one this is more of like a traditional v squat right yeah i often find when prescribing v squats for clients because like if if a client doesn't have like a a hack squat and hack squat or the smith machine's too busy i'll go for like a v squat but often the limiting factor will be range of motion they'll just hit the stopper too early yeah and that's the thing about this one is like i was going like all the way down and it it wasn't getting in the way and i was like that's a really nice just pure movement and like when you come back up it's I also find that the hammer strength one, like the pad, it creates a bit of an awkward angle on your back and you don't actually feel like you're pressing back into the pad or is this one felt a lot better? So mm-hmm. yeah, it'll be good. I'm, I'm looking forward to running that. Yeah, I know what you mean on that because I, I used to find when I would perform the V-squat and the hammer strength, it's like my lower back would start to come off the back. Exactly. Yeah. And um, just didn't feel like it was my levers like kind of fit it properly. I'd almost mm. felt like, I would need to allow my back to come off the pad to actually sit into the bottom range of the mm. squat, squat pattern. You know what else you see a lot of people do on the V squats is good mornings. Have either mm. of you ever programmed good mornings? I've actually run a good morning off the um, off the reverse V. Yeah. yeah. They feel solid, man. They feel great. Absolutely. They look so tough. Hey, like I remember there was a while where um, Alberto Nunes was doing them and he was like, he would go down, like just graze the pins to like, show him where his range stopped and then he'd come back up and man he was doing like you know three three and a half plates aside i was like that is savage they just look like such a tough movement mm, yeah, yeah. I'm keen of, um, good mornings i think it'd be a great exercise i'm keen for both of you to uh eventually try the true squat at rigs because it's quite mm. a unique experience yes yeah. it's basically like a loaded sissy squat like you there's just no leverage on there's that massive sticking point probably midway up um and sort of similar to a to a pendulum mm. well jack i know you don't train legs on a thursday but tiara does no so i do probably... oh you do yes oh like, well i want to train with tiara anyway so you could be okay. there but it'll be a... <laughs> no nah, i'll come out i'll come out soon and we'll, we'll get a session in and then that'll awesome. be in anticipation for for the four of us getting in the gym together and then and go for going for kfc afterwards me and dc mm. might be on the grilled chicken wraps because we're mini cutting, but we'll just get no mayo, mate. Then we can get whatever we want. The mayo's not there. We're good, right? (laughs) Just like whole bucket, no mayo. All right, sweet. High (laughs) fat. Bruh, DY, just delusional. (laughs) Well, uh, boys, I think that pretty much wraps up another episode, yeah? Any any, uh, further comments or things to talk about? All happy? No, no comments from me. I was just going to say that we, um, Jack updates us about the downloads and stuff like that. And, and each week we seem to be surpassing the week before in terms of downloads in the first week. So just a huge thank you to everyone who keeps tuning in and who shares about the show and, um, you know, interacts with us online. It's, it's been a, it's quite a cool little community we're building here and we're all really enjoying the support. So just a big shout out to you guys for continuing to do your thing.
Yeah, absolutely. Mad respect. So that wraps up another episode of the Bodybuilding Down Under podcast. Thank you again for joining us today. If you loved today's episode, remember to give us a subscribe and an awesome review. And we will most certainly see you in the next episode.